You are listening to Future Voices, a podcast brought to you by Beha Futures Foundation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Futures Voices, the podcast where we uncover the interesting stories of Bosnians and Herzegovinians that have wandered the world and done some incredible stuff. Our guest today is no exception to that rule, and she was born and raised in Tuzla, and I'm a little bit proud because I'm also from Tuzla where she completed her schooling, including a Bachelor of Chemistry at the Faculty of Natural Sciences at the University of Tuzla. Following her graduation, she decided to do something crazy in our culture, and that's take a gap year, uh, if you can call it that, traveling to the United States to work on cruise liners and perhaps see the world. Upon her return to her homeland, she received a scholarship from the Czech government to undertake her master's in biochemistry at Palaceco University in Olomouc. After graduating, she received a teaching assistant role at the University of Tuzla, working with students in pharmacy, technology, and natural sciences. Frustrated by the lack of progress opportunities in Tuzla, in 2011, she travels to Afghanistan and lands a role with DynCorp International, an American private military contractor. In 2017, Salma relocates to Lund, Sweden, where she commences work as a laboratory technician and later as an engineer for Sol Voltaics, a company developing nanomaterials to improve the efficiency of solar energy capture, generation, and storage. After two years, she makes another important career move, landing a role with Northvolt, a Swedish battery developer and manufacturer specializing in lithium-ion technology. At Northvolt, Salma demonstrates her capabilities and quickly becomes a production manager. Together with her colleagues at Northvolt, they are on a mission to establish a supply of sustainable batteries in Europe and enable the future of energy. Salma Zilic, welcome to Futures Voices podcast. Hello, and thank you for the invite. Uh, it's a pleasure. It sounds like you've had a very, very interesting life. You've been all over the world from, uh, from your biography. We're going to get into those details, but I always like to start our podcast with and ask you something that all of us in Bosnia are familiar with, and that is, which Mahala are you from in Tuzla? <laughs> Your Mahala, Brčanska Malta, or uh, Skojevska area. Uh, everybody from Tuzla knows that one. Absolutely, we do. So we have that local patriotism down to a few square uh, kilometers, or perhaps even less. Even less, I would say. <laughs> What are some of your fondest memories from your childhood growing up in Tuzla? And I'm referring to that pre-war period. Oh, I had an awesome childhood before the war. Uh, I grew up in a, in a house in a really, really nice neighborhood, uh, a little bit on a hill. Uh, and I grew up with uh, a big group of boys because in that period, a lot of boys uh, were born and I was one of the rare girls. So I had my, uh, my squad there. <laughs> And we had a forest near, so we spent a lot of time in nature. And uh, our parents were just uh, assured that we we're around uh, doing no troubles. So that's where the uh, interest for the nature came, since I spent a lot of time there. So I always knew I will go in a, in a direction of like nature science or working somewhere in the woods or somewhere in national park with animals or do some research about plants. So yeah, my childhood is really was really nice, uh, surrounded with a lot of friends, uh, a lot of uh, uh, playing around until late in the evening uh, when the mom calls 
start calling everybody to go to sleep. So yeah, until 1992, I had really, really nice memories and hanging uh, around uh, in a neighborhood in other streets. So a lot of kids around and a lot of playing, a lot of freedom, I must say. Oh, it sounds like you had a great childhood. And I wanted to touch on the point of nature and how that influenced your career path today. Obviously, your career path was everything but a conventional one. That we'll discover a little bit later on. But how much of an influence did nature really have in you choosing to go into sciences? And what was it specifically that drove you in that direction? I think uh, it was a fascination of how nature, uh, how nature works. Early in my childhood, since we grew up a little bit surrounded by like uh, influence of religion, and I started to like ask myself how something works, how something happens. And luckily, my parents were really trying to uh, influence me to read. And my mom was buying me all these like books for kids, like encyclopedia, how nature works, stories about uh, animals and plants and all these like atlas uh, books. So um, I think also all these stories from like Anderson and Grimm Brothers, like mentioning uh, different animals uh, and just me being in the nature, just watching from the spring to, to winter. And my grandma and granddad, they had a, a garden with different vegetables and different plants and some animals around. And I was visiting my aunt also on the village on the farm. So I, I was always curious how Mother Nature really works. And um, luckily I had those books around me and um, uh, I had a really awesome teacher from first to fourth grade. So she kind of also uh, awake uh, interest in all that uh, Mother Nature functioning. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of things came together in, into a brewing pot that really unraveled the pathway that you were going to take. But as I said, your pathway to that career was everything but conventional. I wanted to perhaps touch on the fact that your education, like many of ours, uh, was disrupted by war. And what a lot of our listeners, especially those in diaspora and those who are second generation diaspora, will want to know, and perhaps even their children, once, once we're old and perhaps no longer around, maybe some of these podcast stories will serve as an inspiration to talk about the lives of Bosnia-Herzegovina professionals that went into the world, uh, had these huge disruptions as a result of the war. What was your childhood like, your teen years uh, during the war in Tuzla? I mean, that, that must have been an absolutely crazy time. Yeah, I was uh, 10 when the war started and uh, we had schoolings in a basement and uh, really teachers and parents, they really tried for us to have kind of normal education. And uh, I remember studying under candles and all these improvisations of light with accum accumulator and like batteries and everything that can create any type of light and borrowing books from uh, generations before us and uh, like just trying to find as much as material we can to study. And uh, our professors, teachers, they try to be creative as much as possible just for us to have that atmosphere of school and not like hearing all these grenades and all this uh, chaos around us. And I must say, I was one of the lucky kids that I was in Tuzla in that period. Uh, being like the largest free uh, uh, free zone. And we had opportunity to uh, play around, to have uh, our own world in a basement, uh, to be surrounded by friends and trying to, um, trying to have the best childhood we could in that period. And I'm grateful that I had a lot of friends around me and that we kind of 
went through that period together, like sharing candies and sharing food, sharing whatever we could get from the side, like supporting each other with like books and materials. And we had people different generation around me. So that kind of unity of different generations and just like pushing each other to to uh, uh, create our own world was really uh, fascinating when I see it from this perspective, uh, how we had, uh, I must say, we had even fun in that period. Uh, it, was, it was horrible time, but a little bit older generations, they tried to really create a special world for us to have as much as fun as possible, uh, even stealing some things around to create a playground for us, like a darts or a ping pong table. They would find it somewhere in some uh, basements or warehouses and uh, just trying uh, to create a normal childhood for the kids. I'm fascinated by the amount of work that was put in by certain individuals to try and shield, especially the younger population, from the realities of what was going on out there in comparison to the basement. So that's really, really fascinating. And thank you for sharing those memories from education from the basement. I'm sure we can we can say it that way in those circumstances and being super creative. And I'm sure some of that creativity that you and your colleagues at that time uh, garnered in the basements has played a big part in how you conduct yourself and the work that you do today. It might not be a direct connection, but I'm sure underneath the hood, there are a lot of, uh, I guess, connections in your brain going back to that time. We mentioned in your biography that you finished uh, university studies and decided to go to the US to work on cruise liners. This is probably something that goes against all Bosnian tradition. So our tradition would dictate school, more school, then get a job, get married, have kids, get that one lifetime job and stay there forever. Uh, we know how the rest goes. Did you have a plan in mind at the time when you decided to, after schooling, go to the United States to do something which had nothing to do with your formal studies? Or was it just a random, uh, you know what, I'm just gonna go and explore the world? Well, it was a little bit of both. <laughs> I always knew that I will go somewhere and do some things outside my homeland. Uh, I always knew that I don't want to stay there, that I want to go and discover the world in uh, in a way of working or studying or or just uh, traveling. Uh, so I remember when I graduated faculty and I was frustrated because I couldn't get a job. Uh, I applied on so many sides and positions uh, all around Bosnia, and uh, I was frustrated just to getting uh, rejected, rejected, rejected. And my parents, they knew that I will not stick around, that I need to go uh, to the world. And my dad, uh, he really uh, influenced me there because he was a bus driver, so he drove all around Europe all his life. He saw the world and he wanted me to go and just do whatever I want and like just enjoy the world and like not to stick around in those like uh, usual traditions. So one day he brought me a newspaper that he was reading every day. And uh, on the backside, he saw an advertising that like, hey, look, there is some agency that employs young people on a cruise ships. Why don't you check it? And he gave me the newspapers. I saw an email. I sent my resume. And they called me for an interview and I got a job to go to the to work on a cruise ship for eight months somewhere like 10,000 kilometers away. And I told my parents, hey, I'm going to work on a cruise ship for eight months because I wanted to uh, save money for my master's studies that I couldn't pay at that time in Tuzla. And my parents, they knew that I'm going to leave at some point my home. So I packed my bag and I went 
to the cruise ship, spent eight months away from my parents. I'm a single child. Uh, yeah, so that was adventure of life. And I think if I didn't done that, I would regret that all my life. And I'm sure that opened your eyes up to the world of travel. Uh, great influence yeah. from your father, you know, to tell you, hey, there's this huge world out there outside of Tuzla. Uh, you decided to take that leap of faith and travel somewhere quite different, uh, spend some time. I really admire the fact that you decided to do that, not only to see the world, but also to save some money and pay for your studies rather than uh, sit and moan about the fact that there are no opportunities. So you have that hustler, go-getter attitude. We always admire that in the Bosnia-Herzegovina Futures Foundation. Uh, you came back to, to Bosnia and you started applying to go and study. And you spent a few years in the Czech Republic, a country that I'm also very familiar with. I've done a lot of work and uh, I've been many times to the Czech Republic. Uh, you went to Palackého University in Olomouc. For those yeah. of our listeners who are not aware, this is the second oldest academic institution in Czech Republic. It's the oldest in Moravia, which is uh, the, the, the lower part of the Czech Republic for those who are listening. And it was established in 1573. Olomouc is a town of about 100,000 people. It's very comparable to Tuzla, maybe slightly smaller than Tuzla uh, if, to, if we take into account the recent expansion in population. But yet it has 20,000 students on campus. So that's quite incredible that such a large proportion of the population is students. Today, there are more and more people from Bosnia and Herzegovina going to study and work in Czech Republic. It wasn't the case all those years ago. Uh, many U.S. companies have set up shops in Czech Republic as well. What was your experience like at that time, studying and, uh, I guess, you know, getting to know the Czech culture and all the different cultures that were present in the time? Well, for me, it was a really, really discovery. Uh, since we all had presumptions about Czech or Slovak people, knowing them from Adriatic Sea, and we call them like tomato tourists, and uh, I didn't know like Czech people in person. So I had a little bit of a, of a wrong idea about them. So when I got the scholarship and thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to go and study in Czech Republic, like also one of the post-socialist countries, I didn't have any idea how it is over there. I just knew about Prague, but um, I was studying, I was going to study 400 kilometers away from Prague. So I was like, okay, I can always come back. And I didn't want to miss a chance for good scholarship and really good study program. So when I went there uh, with a group of other people from Bosnia and Serbia at that time, uh, it was this program for ex-Yugoslav republics. Uh, so a group of 10, 15 of us went there and we were fascinated for the first week just by uh, relations to students, the accommodation in student dorm, uh, how people are kind. The city itself was beautiful. They called that city small Prague. It's just amazing city. And just the whole atmosphere that after a week, everybody was super, super like satisfied. And of course we decided to stay there. So, uh, and my uh, impressions of Czech people were like, really, I was so, so amazed by them in first month because I was the only foreigner in my department, 29 Czechs and me. <laughs> so they helped me a lot in the beginning. And uh, I really love like Czech Republic and those people are in my heart forever. And whenever I go passing Czech Republic, I have special, special feeling about that area. And uh, the whole study and whole support and whole university system over there. And they have a lot of foreigners and Erasmus program and studies in English language. And the university is just diametrically different from any university at the Balkans. 
so yeah, I, I got really um, amazing experience and memories from, from that period. And uh, I even planned at that time to stay and work in Czech Republic, but I couldn't get uh, a visa to stay in 2019. So I had to go back to Bosnia. And as a result of that fact, not being able to get a job in the Czech Republic, you ended up in Afghanistan. I mean, we can't be any more contrastive in terms of going from the Czech Republic to Afghanistan of all places. How did you land a role in Afghanistan? I mean, why Afghanistan? Was it was it out of desperation or was it the fact that you wanted to really test yourself having been to the United States? Now you've been sort of halfway in the Czech Republic and then you decide to offshoot to Afghanistan. Yeah, that was an interesting story. Uh, I was working uh, at uh, Tuzla University at that time as a, as a research assistant and uh, had this weird contract that they had for, uh, for external, uh, external employees. And I was looking for some other opportunities because um, they were uh, pushing me from university like to do uh, to start my PhD. Then I made a jokes like uh, with uh, what salary to start PhD <laughs> because the salary was horrible <laughs> for research assistant. I, I couldn't uh, start my PhD with that. And then I was thinking, OK, uh, it's time to go and do something else in my life. I cannot stick around to Zlai, just uh, wasting my time and uh, not being paid as I supposed to. And uh, one day uh, I was working in a garden and I saw my childhood friend from a, from a house next to me. And he was like, hey, I was applying for a job to Middle East. You know, these American companies here in Hotel Tuzla and they're employing people. And I was like, huh, which company? Because uh, we knew that people were going before like for Floor and KBR and uh, Halliburton and those companies working to Middle East. And he said, oh, it's DynCorp. And I'm like, okay, that's some new company. Let me check that. <laughs> so I went, I Googled them. I saw jobs section. I'm like, oh, there are some interesting jobs for me. And then I just applied for like curiosity to see where I can fit there. And they called me the same day to come for an interview. And I went just being curious. I went for an interview and they're like, hey, you want to go to Middle East to work for DynCorp for like a data analyst? And I'm like, yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm mom, dad, I'm packing my bags again. I'm going to earn my money for PhD this time. So I packed my bags and uh, went to uh, Dubai first for a few weeks of uh, orientation and medical and all those checkups. And then I flew to Kandahar in uh, May 2011. And I stayed in Kandahar working in uh, first in operation department and then they moved me to engineering, uh, engineering department where I spent around three and a half years. So can you talk us through, many people don't understand this, but uh, obviously Afghanistan in, in that time was being rebuilt because let's face it, back, back a few years, it was completely uh, destroyed into the ground. And you're part of this corporation that's there, that's doing a lot of logistical work, supporting works, et cetera, et cetera. What was life like for you uh, at the base since I came to Kandahar and uh, they, they uh, put me to stay there in headquarters, first to work in operation uh, project team. And then later when they moved me to engineering and construction team, I must admit that I kind of belonged to VIP section there. I had my own accommodation. We had uh, cars to use and had more freedom around the base. I had some uh, uh, special accesses to some areas and to do some, uh, some direct 
contacts with the military and some uh, documentation and then being part of the project team that was building stuff all around uh, South uh, Afghanistan. Of course, it's, it's a military base and there was a lot of limitations. I only left base when we had to go to inspection into other bases to check on some projects and how the things are going. So I was just flying from base to base. I didn't have the opportunity to go in Kandahar City or, or like in those areas. And even if I had the opportunity, I don't think I would go there to be as a, as a white blonde uh, girl <laughs> over yeah. there. So I just stick around the base. And even with a lot of limitations there, uh, I must admit we had a lot of fun. Uh, there was a huge Balkan crew. We had a lot of barbecuing celebrations uh, from different holidays, from the Christmas and Bayram and uh, birthdays and other things. And uh, we tried to spend quality time when it comes to like uh, a cinema time or gym time or just playing football or just barbecuing, uh, playing our music, having Balkan parties and just supporting each other even in a work. I had quite a, a, a really nice experience working directly with engineers, being involved in different constructions, in different coordinations with the different departments from logistics, HR, maintenance, uh, construction guys, uh, uh, transport, and so on. And um, I learned a lot. I jumped into a, a construction world uh, coming from like a chemistry and biochemistry world. And luckily, my colleagues were these amazing people. A lot of them were former military, like former Marines, uh, even people who served in Vietnam. And I learned a lot from them and met people from all around the world. And that experience really helped me a lot later when I, when I came to Sweden and uh, uh, implemented all those things I learned there. So, yeah, three, uh, I plan to stay one year in Afghanistan and that kind of became three and a half years. And when I look back, uh, if I eliminate all those like danger and like bombings and, and life-threatening situation, I must admit we had a lot of fun down there. Yeah, I think you have to have fun because a lot of people psychologically can't cope with the fact that you're confined to this base. You can't exactly go out and do what you want and see who you want and et cetera, et cetera. So that collegiality that develops on the base, especially as you said, between people from the Western Balkan nations uh, because of the cultural and language and food perspectives. So important. I've heard that story so many times before. Can I ask, what was one of the craziest things that you've seen or perhaps something that happened uh, while you were there over those three and a half years? Well, I think it was uh, when we accidentally got lost in highly restricted area, uh, four girls in a jeep, four blondes, and we went to a highly restricted military area. Usually people would be shot there or arrested and uh, fired immediately. But we kind of played uh, uh, fools and like being Englishmen in New York, like, oh, what are we doing here? So and being girls around military civilians and we kind of got away with it. They're like, <laughs> So you just you just used that blonde moment to get out get yourself yeah. out of trouble. Oh, it, it was it was good to be a girl in a military base sometimes, especially civilian and being blonde. That's uh, that took us out of a lot of troubles. Uh, but of course, there was also when the bomb hit area that is like two meter from my uh, sleeping container uh, while we were at work. And um, yeah, there was a lot of these like uh, uh, alarm bombing situations when you like 
when you're behind the behind the uh, the truck with the kerosene and you're just yeah. looking at it thinking okay if a bomb hits here probably pieces of me will end up somewhere in uh, Norway or Siberia so you um, were dodging death very very <laughs> frequently and yet somehow you managed to just get your head around the fact that you're in a dangerous zone but I'm going to get through this and not only for one year you got through it three and a half years yeah I think uh, what's American companies are practicing is to employ people from Balkans who were already in the war zone before. Yeah. So it's much to, easier yeah. to cope with, with the war uh, situation when you were already there as a kid. So it was a little bit different um, time when we had bombings and had to be in a bunker and wait for hours. Then you could see a Balkanian group like just having music, playing cards, singing, smoking in front of the bunker instead of being inside. And then Americans will look at us and thinking like, oh, my God, these are some crazy people. Like, how can you have fun while the grenades are around and people dying? And we were just like, put some music on and let's have fun. It's much easier. And somebody will bring some cards and some game and let's like, let's just have fun. We've been there. We've done that. So here we are again. (laughs) You've been desensitized to the violence uh, there. But um, obviously, after those three and a half years, you learned a lot, and that I'm sure played a big part in your career progression. You ended up in Sweden in 2017. Uh, it's fair to say that your life has been full of diverse experiences. I mean, probably one of the most diverse people that we've had on this podcast, given the fact that <laughs> the type of work that you've done in a relatively short time span in your life. But from the sounds of it, you fell in love with Sweden as a country. You've been there since 2017. You also said to me privately that you plan to stay there. Obviously means that you love Sweden. But what is it about Swedish life and Sweden in general that you find appealing? From the moment that I moved here, I felt when I reached Trelleborg at that time, uh, since uh, we were going with the car. So we went from Germany to Sweden with a ferry. And the first touch was Trelleborg. And as soon as uh, we touched the, the Swedish soil, I felt so peaceful and felt like in totally different dimension. And um, especially since my first apartment was in Lund, where I start to work and uh, Lund is this beautiful university city with such a special energy and such a special uh, atmosphere. Uh, I fell in love with that city and starting working with an international company, but there were a lot of Swedish people with different regions of Sweden, like so Swedes from Norrbotten and Swedes from Gothenburg and Stockholm and like south on south of Sweden. When I start to get to know them closely and 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 start socializing with them and cooperating at work, I just fell in love also with those people and all these, how to say, previous thinking that they're cold people and distance just went like uh, went to the water, as we say. And uh, I kind of fell in love with, in those people because they are so simple. They are, uh, they have this uh, simple way of life and not paying attention to things that Balkan people are paying attention and, and wasting a lot of energy to that. And just the system, how it works, and uh, not to mention the, the rights of workers and the influence of union and uh, uh, when it comes around salary and vacation and all that uh, rights of workers, it's just amazing. And the opportunity to develop yourself because uh, Swedish companies, even if they're international, they really work on developing of people and their skills 
personalities and giving a chance to really prove yourself and just to go forward. There is there is so many chance, even in a private life, in social life in this country, to use everything that the country gives you to invest in yourself. It really does sound like you've fully integrated into Swedish culture. But I want to get into your career now because this is the really juicy and interesting part as well. You're working for a company called Northvolt. It's based in Vesteras. Uh, the company was founded by a guy called Peter Carlson. Uh, a lot of people might not know him, but he was an executive at Tesla Motors. And everyone knows Tesla Motors because Elon Musk does such a good job in PR. And the company that Peter Carlson uh, founded, which changed names later on, is a battery developer and manufacturer specializing in lithium-ion technology. So why is this so important today for everyone listening? Well, you know, we have these things uh, called electric vehicles and other forms of uh, e-mobility that are highly, highly demanding of this industry. So Salma will tell us more about that. But you moved your way up in the organization fairly quickly over the last few years. I'm sure you can credit a lot of that to great support in the company, but also to the fact that you've been challenged numerous times in your life. We spoke about a few of them, but I'm sure there's others in there as well. Tell us a little bit about the company from your perspective and what does your day-to-day look like in the organization? Yeah, the company uh, is founded by Peter and Paolo. Paolo Ceruti, he was also a a Tesla person. So two of them um, created the company and uh, had the mindset that Europe needs uh, their own source of a so-called green battery uh, for different appliances. So we develop prototypes and do research for automotive industry, of course, when it comes to vehicles and the trucks and the mining equipment. Uh, but of course, also we develop prototypes for uh, companies like Bosch and Hilti and Black & Decker for these small appliances. Then uh, we will develop for aviation, for different types of transport, uh, from electrical bikes to uh, cell phones to uh, uh, tablets and so on. So it's, it's quite broad uh, usage of uh, our batteries. And um, the most important thing is that we try to develop so-called green technology and invest a lot in research of recycling. So the idea of the company is to create a battery that is going to be under European Union standards when it comes comes to source of raw material, to get the source at least 80% from recycling of old batteries from whole Europe or even uh, broader, uh, that we will recycle everything from these small coin batteries AAA, AA, any battery that you can imagine that exists, we will recycle in Northvolt. And we will try to get other raw materials from the mines that don't use like uh, slavery or children in in, um, uh, excavations and so on. So the whole idea, it's it's really fascinating to try to create uh, a product that it's known to be really damaging the environment when it's uh, on the end of its life. So usually people ask, uh, what are you doing with the batteries when when you take them off the car, like when their life is done? We recycle them. And our uh, recycling program is really progressing a lot. On the, uh, the prototyping that I work on are cylindrical cells. And those cylindrical cells are most famous because Tesla is using them. So we are trying to develop similar technology and uh, it's not easy 
to do stuff on your own when you are not allowed to use any of the knowledges from before because they're of course protected and we could just get a lawsuit if we use their knowledge and their prototypes. Yeah, but uh, when it comes to company, uh, it really grew a lot in the last two years. We jumped from uh, 200 people to 2,000 and we are employing more and more people from all around the world. Right now, we have around 105 different nationalities in a company, being really multicultural and uh, working hard to develop different prototypes and to go under EU standards and to have first European green battery that it's going to have so many appliances uh, in all around the world. And right now, we have a lot of interest from different customers when it comes from automotive industry to like companies that produce watches produce IT, IT equipment, aviation, and so on. Uh, when it comes to my uh, a path in a company, uh, that's the thing that I mentioned before, that Sweden offers uh, a lot of opportunity to people to develop themselves and to prove themselves with the hard work, with ideas, approach, innovations. And I think there is this, um, how to say, influence of my Balkan mentality that I'm a direct person and that I never give up, that I always try to learn more, try to ask more, try to discover more, try to troubleshoot, even in the moments when I have no idea what am I doing. I really try to troubleshoot things uh, and uh, include uh, the team. So my path was really fast, where uh, my manager really uh, saw this uh, skills in me and approach a little bit different than other people, uh, that I'm this person that really tried to breach all the borders to reach some knowledge or some discovery or to solve the issue. And I'm really thankful to this company and the previous company that really pushed me to develop my skills, like basically to reach the sky. And my development is not finished. Uh, right now, it's it's going into uh, another direction of a specialist in uh, certain fields, uh, especially when it comes to equipment, uh, to be part of research team that's going to develop a new uh, technology of uh, manufacturing equipment and R&D equipment and so on. So the, the Northvolt uh, people should uh, look into it. It's going to be a really big thing in a year or two when we start with the proper production. Right now, we are still in the R&D and prototyping phase. You will hear, hear more more about us in the in upcoming period and in the future. For sure. Well, I'm super excited to hear about everything that's going on at Northvolt. It's a really incredible story, uh, I guess, your story, but also the company's story. And perhaps for many people, it's flown under the radar, as we like to say. Perhaps it didn't get as much media attention as the Elon Musks of the world do, but it's certainly doing something that is going to revolutionize uh, the future. And I love the tagline on the website, make oil history. And they're not kidding around because Northvolt, as you said, has grown in terms of employees. It's grown in terms of locations. But most recently, there is something brewing in the north of Sweden. And there is a factory being built. It's a giga factory that's being built up there. It's said to be larger than the old town of Stockholm. So have you had the chance to visit this site yet? And what else can you tell us about uh, what is going on in the north of Sweden? 
Yeah, a lot of things are boiling in a cold north. Yes, we are, I haven't had a chance to visit yet, but uh, it's in plans. Uh, I will probably uh, go and visit when we start with the cylindrical line uh, installations and to go uh, to check on equipment and to do some uh, stuff around. It's a gigafactory. It's going to be enormous and huge, and it's going to be built in phases in probably next 10 years. Uh, depending of the blocks and depending of the uh, requirements of the customers. The reason they chose Huleftio or Shuleftio is that it uh, has really good green energy source. Uh, they have hydro potential over there and the factory needs a lot of energy. So the company was aiming to get a green energy. And of course, what is better than the water or the wind? So uh, they chose uh, the water energy uh, and the water plants. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to provide us uh, enough energy for, for operations. And of course, it's a port. So we have access for uh, huge cargo ships that we can uh, import material and, of course, uh, transport ourselves in the future. And the whole town starts to develop now. They're starting building a lot of uh, apartments, a lot of support uh, support uh, objects like restaurants and international school and so on. We plan to employ more than 3,000 people of different profiles from cleaners to engineers and, and directors and shift leads and so on. So everybody can check. So I'm always encouraging people to apply and try to lose, uh, not to lose motivation if they get rejection of, after one or, or, or two, three times. But yeah, Gigafactory is developing. Uh, it's going rapidly fast. We hope to, to have it up and running soon. And it's going to go like in different phases, depend of the, of the blocks and depending uh, of the people training uh, and so on. Of course, the priority will be automotive industry, of course, when it comes to different uh, automotive uh, companies like Porsche, Volkswagen, Audi, Volvo, uh, Scania, BMW, uh, and so on, that people can read mostly on our webpage. And there are some uh, customers and interests that I can't talk about. And of course, other companies, as I mentioned, uh, uh, small appliances companies like Hilti, everybody knows Hilti and their drills, and then Black & Decker and Bosch and Electrolux and uh, Husqvarna and all these uh, appliances from the kitchen to the bathroom to like uh, uh, tablets and uh, IT equipment, whatever you can imagine that needs a power. We have interests from those customers to build cells from them. Uh, and of course, depending on the sales requirement, that's my job to develop first a good prototype and to prove that it's good enough for some customer and then we will go to production. So my work is quite challenging to do um, so many tests of different prototypes and different mechanical parts or electrode parts and try to lock design that will go to a production of millions or billions of cells. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. I'm, like I said, I'm really looking forward to seeing what, what happens and how that impacts the whole European and probably the world market, uh, given the fact that the production is going to be enormous. I wanted to maybe just uh, before we finish up with our podcast, because of your diverse background and everything that you've done, many people often forget that those experiences uh, play a significant part in our lives and how we uh, essentially put ourselves in a position to secure roles, to do well in our roles. What would you say of everything that you've learned prior to getting these jobs in Sweden? Obviously, you have your formal education, right? You've studied chemistry. But what was it that's non-technical that you learned 
in those experiences in the US, on the, on the ships, in Afghanistan, uh, teaching people, what are those transferable skills that most young people you know, tend to ignore that you learned as a result of that moving around, interacting with different people that you utilize on a daily basis today? And essentially that makes you a success in the role that you conduct. One of the things that I notice on the young people is that their fear to dare uh, and like to uh, to have enough courage to do some things. Like people need to have that in uh, in themselves, like courage to do things, to be uh, really like honest to themselves and their capabilities, and uh, to be free to make mistake. People really have a lot of hesitation about that, being afraid, are they going to do some mistake or fail? And uh, the thing is that most of the things you learn by failing. Uh, that's what I learned through my career. Like after a lot of failures, then you learn how to do it. From my failure as a waitress that I dropped several uh, plates in my first day and like really tr- wanted to quit until you really learn how to do those things. I think also the Balkan mentality uh, helps a lot uh, to be like this uh, really like breakthrough person. Also the the honesty to other people and to be like really straightforward and not to paint things uh, into butterflies and flowers and try to uh, like uh, change data or try to lie. I just need to be super honest, even if you really mess up some things. Uh, also, people have to ask for help. That's that's one of the things I learned. People have to have mentors and ask for help when they really need it. And just for me, I think one of my characteristics is that I'm impulsive and I always want to, I always question why and like why is something and try to discover and find the answer. And even if I need to pull people for the sleeve and like, come on, can you sit with me and uh, explain to me in five, 10 minutes uh, and just go and ask and ask. Also, one thing that my mom taught me is that always be kind. Even if you can't stand the person, always be kind because the nice words will open the door for you anywhere. To be a kind, but direct and honest person. So that approach, a lot of my managers really liked. And so potential in me, because I was always the person talking about troubles and issues we had and how to solve it and always saying things like obvious things. So people have to have freedom to say things and to be able to talk in front of the crowd. Like that is super important because you cannot progress in industry or any type of research if you're not able to talk in front of the people and just being uh, the person that will raise a hand. Like if somebody says, oh, somebody has some questions and you'll be the person like asking whatever is unclear or whatever you want to know. So uh, in my surrounding, everybody knows that I'm that type of person. So that I will always ask some question if something is unclear and I will always try to find a path to find out things and the uh, question like, especially in research. In research, you always have to question and always, uh, because uh, research is uh, developing and finding out processes and and, uh, prototypes and things and analyzes and tests. So when we stop to question ourselves why, then it's time to leave that uh, (laughs) that department or uh, industry. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Questioning, questioning, questioning. I think it's something that in Bosnian culture wasn't taught from early on, but we're trying to change that nature 
to be more inquisitive openly, not inquisitive within ourselves. I, I just wanted to say it's been a pleasure talking to you, Salma. Your career is fascinating. I'm sure a lot of people are going to really enjoy listening to the story. Uh, go green or go home, another tagline from uh, Northvolt's website. I think that one does actually sort of reflect your life a little bit because you found a green place, you found a green company, and you found a place where you're going to really do some big things. So for all of our listeners out there, uh, Selma Zilic working at North Vault, doing some incredible work, revolutionizing uh, the battery world, that's for sure. Um, she's currently a cylindrical production manager at North Vault. Please look her up, stay in touch, stay in touch, and look at the work that North Vault is doing because it's going to impact many facets of life. Selma, once again, such a pleasure to have you here. And also, let me say publicly, uh, thank you to your mother for giving you all that great advice. <laughs> <laughs> so a big shout yeah. out to your mom and, uh, and everyone that played a big part in your life. And also, thank you for supporting Bosnia Herzegovina Futures Foundation uh, so generously. You did say be kind, and you've definitely been very kind to us as well. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. So there you go, everyone. Uh, goodbye from myself here in Melbourne, Australia, and Salma Zilic in Sweden. We look forward to having you uh, on our next episode of Futures Voices. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you.